Welcome to How We Got There. I am your host, Mike Davis, founder of Go-To-Market Guides. I interview thought leaders and founders in the Salesforce ecosystem to help ISVs learn new techniques to try and mistakes to avoid. This episode of How We Got There is brought to you by Epiphany. Epiphany is a leading product development outsourcer that has been helping app exchange partners architect, develop, and get their apps through the Salesforce security review since 2009. Epiphany is the only PDO funded by Salesforce Ventures, and its customers include Stripe, Slack, LinkedIn, DocuSign, and even Salesforce themselves. Visit epiphany.com, that's A-P-P-I-P-H-O-N-Y.com to learn more about how Epiphany can help your organization successfully launch your app on the Salesforce App Exchange today. All right, so I'm here with Drew Quinlan, who is a longtime pro in the Salesforce ecosystem. He'll introduce himself, but he has Oracle experience. He was actually on the Salesforce Partner Alliances team. He helped to build Conga's Alliances strategy and is now over at Rink Central. So, Drew, super excited to interview you. And if you can kick us off by just introducing yourself and share a little bit about how you how you found your way into Alliances. Yeah, sure. So I'm currently the the vice president of strategic alliances over at Ring Central. I really run two major functions. One is what we consider our strategic alliances, where we go into other people's ecosystems backed by a productized integration, and we try to extract value for ourselves. And then we we also run a marketplace program where we allow third parties to build an integration and then try to extract value from our ecosystem back for themselves, which is typically in the form of, of leads back to them for their, for their own products. I got into alliances pretty early in my, in my career. It was almost by accident. I, I studied computer engineering in school, did direct sales for about five or six, maybe seven years, immediately out of school, and then wanted to get into the software world. I had a good friend of mine at Oracle that sat next to the hiring manager for their ISV OEM organization. And he got me in to interview and I ended up getting that job over at, over at Oracle. So those were early days of bundling software infrastructure for distribution with on-prem licensing. When I was there, it transitioned into selling infrastructure to SaaS companies, followed several of those early Oracle leaders over to Salesforce, where we were early days kind of on the app exchange, spent several years there seeing the inside of one of those programs, got recruited by uh, Mark and, and Michael, the, the wonderful founders of, of Conga, to go help them build some alliance programs. So left and went to Conga for a few years and did that. Spent a few years at PTC running both strategic alliances and the marketplace program for their IoT business, which was fascinating. That's a real ecosystem play. 25 to 30 different hardware, software, and services vendors across a single deal type to get a full production solution into into place. That, that was a wild ride. And then now I'm at Ring Central. So it's been it's been a long time from many different types of partner programs, partner types, many different directions into ecosystems, I'm setting up our own ecosystems. But I've thoroughly enjoyed every every minute of it. That's great. Thanks for that. And when you're thinking about a new founder who doesn't yet have a full-time alliances person, where do they start? There's so many options for them. How do they get started and how do they know what's most important? That's a great question. You know, and I get asked that question fairly often and it's it's hard to answer 
because it's very specific to the stage of company, the type of solution, the type of business you're trying to build. And so there's, there's, there's different reasons to go after different partner types and different programs. So typically what I try to do is dive in with a founder for a while and figure out where's your product market fit and, and why. Why are people paying you money? What's the specific unique value that you're creating? And then I typically try to help them understand what stage of the business they're at. Is it increasing acquisition? Is it reducing churn? Is it just awareness building? Does your product have a heavy implementation workload? And, and from, from those variety of, of different questions, you can typically hone in on a specific partner type. And then with some research, you can, you can find the leading partners in those, in those fields. And for early founders, a, a rifle approach is, is much, much better than a, than a shotgun approach. Alliances take a significant investment of time and energy and resources. To be a good partner, you have to be fully engaged. And so you know, usually there's, there, there's two things I recommend. is One, to kind of go through that process and identify a very, very short list of potential partners and have a very clear idea of the value proposition, right? Like what, what are you going to get out of it as a, as a founder for your company? What is the partner going to get out of it? And then third, and most importantly, what is the joint end customer going to get out of it? That's, that's incremental and unique that they can't get without the two of you guys going to market together. So that's, that's the first concept. The second thing I recommend to people is that they immediately join ASAP or the Association of Strategic Alliance Professionals. They've got some fantastic resources, textbooks, online certifications, trainings that teach people the, the real fundamentals of alliances and what they mean and how to operate them, checklists of the things you should be thinking about and doing, how to operationalize them, you know, how to make your first hire. All of that information has already been you know, collected and vetted and used, and it's all... It's all part of ASAP's programs. So those are the two key recommendations I make to founders. Figure out your rifle approach, who and why, a, a very short list. And then two is go, go to ASAP and, and, and educate yourself on what alliances and partnerships actually means. And I have to ask, when you say short list, is that five, is that 10, is that 20? Because the other side of the partnership they have their own business they're running and and not everybody, even if the joint value prop is super strong, they just can't be receptive to it at a, at a point in time. So when you say short list, how short? Yeah, if it's a product focused um, list, if you're going after other ISVs, typically that list is three to five, right? Because after that market share in that particular segment tends to drop off pretty rapidly. If it's a services partner, like an SI of some sort, Typically, the list is a lot, a lot larger because that that market tends to be much more fragmented, especially as you start to look at the the specialty areas. Like if you're looking for you know North America based CPQ experts, right? There's probably twenty to thirty that you could potentially target. But if it comes to product, it's 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 typically a much shorter list. That's great. To bring you back to when you started with Congo with Mark and Michael, I mean. That talk about world class alliances done right at Conga. But thinking back to that, what are you most proud of from your from your time there? Yeah, it was it was a great process. So the the thing that I was most proud of at Conga was being a part of the early stage company where there was such a rigid focus on who cares about anything but making the customer happy and 
a big success, right? And just being a part of a company where that was the mantra and, and everything else was secondary, it, it was just a wonderful environment to be a part of. And so starting up the initial channel and, and partner programs there, we took that same approach, right? And so it was never about, you know, how many leads can you get me? It was more about, hey, you know, this is our product. We think it's pretty awesome. Here's all the ways we're going to serve you as a partner to make it really easy to do business with us. And if you want to do business with us, that's that's great. And so taking that friendlier approach that was much less aggressive, it gave us the time to build real relationships with the early partners. And so what what we did there is because Conga was much more of a platform than a than a product, right? It took a lot of implementation time to get it up and running. You could get a simple solution done really, really quickly. But in the early days to do anything even slightly complicated, it, there, there was, you know, there was coding involved. And so it was critical that we had a robust network of services partners that could take on that, that work in the form of billable hours to produce the solutions that our end customers really, really needed and wanted. And so we got to recruit a lot of different partners. We served them really well by giving them access, direct access to some of our best technical resources. You know, we had great great self-service content, which is really what SI is like. They don't like to send uh, an email and wait for an answer. There's a, a huge set of resources they can dive into. And our, our online learning was just world, world class for a company that size. You know, that, that was really unique, was that kind of relaxed approach. And, and it was a lot of fun to be a part of because some of those partners we built, we built great friendships with. Great. And for the folks that haven't been inside the, the four walls of, of Salesforce, what what did you learn there that that you think would be helpful for people to understand? Yeah, I think the public messaging that Salesforce tends to put forward about partners versus the reality of how it actually works when you're interacting with your your PAM, your partner account manager, are are two pretty different things, right? Salesforce pushes heavily on the fact that your the PNR percentage that you pay in, it gets routed to the reps as a as a commission payment, they call it a cha-ching internally. They, they publicly state that that has a significant impact. And when you're inside, what you'll realize is that that has some sort of impact, but it's not that big. You certainly have to be a part of those programs because if you're not, then the reps will tend to shy away from you. But if you are, there's a whole other significant piece of work that needs to occur. Leads just don't just don't come to you, right? And you 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 really learn that when you're on the inside and you're you're responsible for interacting directly with the sales teams and the and the CSM teams inside Salesforce. And you know, you you you, you realize quickly that the Cha-Ching's not not nearly as much top of mind for them as as maybe the partner team would would try to get you to believe. Yeah, I mean with 8,000 apps on the app exchange, I certainly feel for the individual AEs and SEs that are getting hit up all the time by the various ISVs and different SIs and and then themselves having a million dollar number. It's a it's a difficult balance to be to be in that seat and and try to serve all those all those different constituents. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. I I call it partner fatigue, right? And you have to think you have to put yourself in the in the shoes of of those sales reps at a company like Salesforce. It's a massive expectation to to get them to be able to understand their own product set, 
across marketing cloud, service cloud, sales cloud, and it goes on and on. They have such a wide breadth of uh, products at this point. I don't know how anyone would even possibly keep on top of their own their own products. But when they get a hundred that they get paid a hundred percent on. They get paid a hundred percent on, right? (laughs) And so at at most, what I found as I built these programs at multiple companies, at most you can expect the average field sales rep to absorb and be able to confidently produce leads for maybe three to five different partners, period. So ISVs, SIs, et cetera, three to five at at most. And that's not an ability to sell. That's an ability to just source a lead. And and so a lot of the time what I advise people to do is, is not go after the Google, the AWS, the Microsoft, the ServiceNow, like right off the bat. There are so many $100 million plus app ecosystems out there today that, you know, the way that I tend to describe it is about thinking about it as a as a as a pie, right? Yes, yeah, Salesforce has a huge pie, but the little tiny sliver that you might get of it isn't going to be that big. Where you can go to an ecosystem with a much smaller pie and get a much larger slice of it because you're much earlier stage, you can get a lot more attention especially if it's a really nice fit from a value perspective for both the partner and the, and the end customer in that, in that ecosystem, you can get a much larger slice of a, of a much smaller pie, which is going to be bigger for you in the, in the, in the long run, right? So, so that's, that's usually a good move is to avoid the largest ecosystems at first until you really figure it out and then maybe make an entrance later when you've got more, more resourcing and more success under your, under your belt. Yeah. That makes sense. And and I want to switch gears a little bit and, and think about the SI relationships, the system integrators that you mentioned as one of the one of the components of an effective alliances strategy. What's your opinion of incentivizing SIs for referrals as part of the the WIFM, the what's in it for me for them? Yeah, I think that there's two different approaches, right? And they really vary. You can go far with a resell or kind of a referral model if that's part of the SI's model, right? So if they're running a managed services business, like a lot of the GSIs do, um, that's who you want to target for the, the reseller or the referral component models, right? For the rest of the SIs, and especially out of the GSI realm and into the regional SIs, it's it's a it's a different story. You know, there's so we didn't pay any referral fees at Conga at all to to the SIs. And you know, when I left that company, I think it was sixty four percent of of inbound closed business was being sourced from the SI community, and we weren't paying any referral fees at all. So, so that begs the question, like, what, what were we doing? Well, we, we took that funding instead, and we, we funded several heads that were solutions experts, like heavily technical solutions experts that were a, a main point of contact for these SIs. So they could get instantaneous responses to not just technical questions, but they can log support cases and, and, and work through support issues with those same resources, right? They didn't have to call the 1-800 number that, that end customers had to call. So that, that was one. Two was that they, they trusted us, right? So 
when an SI recommends a partner and brings them in to implement them, their reputation is at stake. And so we had built a considerable amount of trust with these partners that, you know, products don't always work. But when Conga, when there was an issue with Conga, we would jump on it immediately and give an amazing support experience. So the SI looked great in front of their customers, whether that was during implementation or whether it was two or three years later after the SI had already rolled off the job. They trusted that we were going to take care of the customers that they introduced us to. So, so we focused really heavily on those, on those two things. One is quick, easy, expert access to technical resources for the SIs. And, and, and two was that, that long-term trust that we were going to take care of the customers they brought us into. And that paid massive dividends way over and beyond what I think even the referral fee components would do. Now, as I say that as kind of a rule, that was really how it worked in Europe and in North America. It, it, it was different in APAC, especially in ANZ. Australia, New Zealand, those guys really expected a business model where you could return an ongoing recurring fee for, for sourcing the business. And they, they built their entire business model around that. So we, we would pay some referral fees in that, in that part of the world. Interesting. Interesting how the different regions approach it differently. Yeah. Yeah. What's, what's one mistake from a program perspective that you thought was going to work and then once implemented for whatever reason, it, it didn't work? Yeah, sure. I've made the mistake a couple times in my career going too broad, too fast with, with partners. So at Conga, we went a little too broad. At one point, we had over 500 different SIs refer leads in in a, in a single fiscal year. And applying that, that resource-intensive trust and, and, and uh, technical resource access model to, to 500 plus partners just it didn't work financially as, as well as it should have. And you know that was a long tail of partners. There was probably 350 of those that had only given us one or two leads that, that year. So the return wasn't necessarily anywhere near large enough to, to validate the investment that, that we were making. So we went a little too broad, too fast there. And then you know something similar at, at PTC, there were certain segments of that solution map. Think about things like the, the sensor vendors, which were not heavily differentiated. You know, we kind of went a route where we recruited 30 to 40 of those partner types. And we, we didn't need that many. We probably needed four or five. And so the time and energy and effort to recruit and maintain those partnerships while minimal per partner, because we, we kept it a pretty low touch model, it's still, it, it took an extra head or two to manage all of those partnerships. And, and we probably didn't need to make that investment. So, so I tend to, at this point in my career, create a tremendous amount of focus, go after a smaller subset of high quality partners and make sure that we're maximizing the, maximizing the investment there as opposed to going, you know, too, too broad. And to that point about knowing where to focus 500, I mean, there's, there's about 1500 SIs in the Salesforce ecosystem. So you had a third refer business one year. That's incredible. But how do you, is it art? Is it science? How do you, how do you sniff out a partner that's worth investing in early on in the relationship? What signals do you look for? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So we we came up with a fairly 
I don't want to say rigid, but a very defined program. Like, this is how it works. This is what you're going to get. This is how we're going to invest. And this is what we expect from you. We expect this investment from you. And this is how it's going to impact the end, the end customers. And this is how it's going to impact your business. We were extremely upfront with the programmatic aspects. And what we would typically do or what I would have my team do was like set milestones and timelines and say, okay, if we're going to move forward and you agree, this is what we need done uh, in this time frame, And you're going to do this and we're going to do this and then you're going to do this and then we're going to do this. And if we had to start to chase that partner at all, we would really disengage pretty pretty quickly. If you have to chase them in the early stages, you're going to be chasing them forever. So that, in my mind, is an indicator of whether they're placing enough value on this partnership to consider it at least very important, if not strategic in nature to themselves. And if they're not, and you're just another dime a dozen logo that they're throwing up on their website, uh, that's, that's not a good area to invest. So early stage responsiveness, in my mind, is a, is a critical component of evaluating you know, long-term partner success. Love that. Love that. If, if you could ma- uh, wave a magic wand in the, in the Salesforce ecosystem and change one thing, what would that be? Ooh, that's a great question. You know, I think that I know why Salesforce has gone this route, but when I was there, they were hiring very senior partner managers that had a lot of experience that could get, they, they didn't follow a playbook. They could get very unique. They would come up, they'd find an edge for each partner. They could take the time to evaluate each partner and the specific strengths and weaknesses and really find a niche to kind of drive business and make that partner successful. Over time, they have absolutely gone with much more junior partner managers and handed them uh, a step-by-step playbook, right? And this, this works really well when you're selling externally, right? You can hire, you hire really expensive sales reps early on. They figure out the process. They write the playbook. And then you can go more junior and more junior. But you know, there's essentially unlimited growth externally. You can keep winning more and more deals. When you're talking about a partner program, it doesn't really work that way, right? It's a, it's a zero-sum game. There's only so much mind share, right? Back to that partner fatigue concept. So there's internal employees, but they can only absorb a handful of partners. And so if every single partner manager is, is the vast majority of them are pretty junior and they're all following the same exact playbook, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work because there's no, there isn't an unlimited number of new reps to educate or to win mindshare from, right? So, so I think if I could wave a magic wand, I would go back to the days where Salesforce had a much broader set of more senior, unique, like provocative, original partner managers that could figure out how to make partners successful on an individual level and, and, and get away from kind of these, the, the junior managers they have now that they kind of just um, tend to follow a, a standard playbook. Nice. Nice. How's, how's the pandemic impacted your business and your alliance's strategy is at ring central? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So here at ring central, we've set up the partner program a little bit differently, right? So 
at a lot of places, it's very much focused on source and influence leads. Like what, what are these partners bringing us, et cetera, right? And that's really how it was when I, when I showed up about 14, 15 months ago. But we, we dove in, we took a look at the data. And what we realized was that RingCentral was already like an acquisition machine. Where we really wanted to improve was on turnover and, 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 and churn. You know, it's, it's a highly competitive market. There's a lot of big name players in the in the space. There's a lot of price sensitivity and price pressure. So what are our partners doing for us to help us retain and grow customers as opposed to acquire them upfront? And what we realized is that as we segmented out, you know, SMB mid-market enterprise, there was a significant impact between the platform using cohort and the non-platform using cohort. So what we realized is that when people started to uh, adopt integrations, they would stay longer and buy and buy more. And it, and it was a significant difference. And so we've really focused the program heavily on adoption, right? Building awareness of the existing integrations and then, you know, driving adoption of those, those integrations. So the, the pandemic helped us dramatically, to, to be honest, because as people shifted out of their office space, and to, to home, they started adopting the integrations more and more and more. And, and, you know, we don't know exactly necessarily why that was, but people were trying to become more efficient. You know, they didn't have access to the same people that they could just ask questions to. So they had to get access to different systems and they figured they could just integrate everything. And it just made people more efficient as they were working from home because they got quicker, easier, faster access to different kinds of data. They were able to eliminate a bunch of manual manual effort. A lot of things were automated. A lot of tasks were automated. So, so it's actually been really impactful for us. We've seen the adoption of integrations go up and up and up. You know, there's some third party integrations into our platform that were very much about you know managing the workforce and tracking uh, tracking workflow and tracking efficiencies. And a lot of corporations adopted those. We saw a lot of call centers that had traditionally and forever have been in call centers that were all of a sudden dispersed globally. And, you know, tracking workers and tasks and, and worker efficiency in those scenarios is, is critical. So integrating more and more tools into or integrating Ring Central into their existing tool sets became a critical way for them to kind of track that. So it's, it's actually been a big boon, not just to Ring Central, but to our, to our partner business as well. That makes sense. Drew, we're going to move into the final three. And actually, as a fellow U.S. soccer fan, a big U.S. soccer fan, you're going to get a bonus question in the final three. Just rapid fire questions, 10-second answers. You ready? Yep. All right. Who is one company or person in the ecosystem that you track or follow? Ooh, within the Salesforce ecosystem, you know, I, I have always stayed in touch with Doug, Doug Cheney. He's bounced over to the salesforce.org side, but I worked for him when I was there. One of the brightest guys I know understands and puts customers and partners first. So if I ever have a tough question, I, I go to him fairly often. What would you tell yourself day one of working in the ecosystem? To spend a tremendous amount of time understanding the partners you're working with, the joint value propositions they bring to the table and you know how it impacts end and customers and to figure that out first before before any kind of action. 
And what gives you energy in your personal life? What recharges you? I work pretty hard morning until late afternoon. And then I've got three young kids. The second they roll in from school, uh, I say hi to them and I have a little more work to do. And then I typically spend the vast majority of my evenings carting them around to their activities and spending time with them. You know, and that, that really, it, it helps me keep focused on what, what the real priorities in life are. So that, that really re-energizes me. Nice. And your bonus question, what happens first? The women's team winning 10 World Cups or the men's team winning one? <laughs> well, the women's team is absolutely phenomenal. They, they continue to be. It's, it's interesting. A lot of other countries on the women's side are, are catching up and closing the gap as other countries invest there. But, but I'm a huge believer in the men's team and especially with the recent wave of, of younger guys. I think we might have a chance here before the women get to 10. It's going to be a close Let, Let's go. Love that. Drew, you're, you're phenomenal expert in the alliances field and it's a great, great having you on the show. Thank you for the time. Yeah. Thanks for the time, Mike. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. And I hope you learned something from today's episode of how we got there. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. I'll see you here next time.